0: Space Radio. Roger, restart. Three, two, one. Mark. It's now time for The Space
1: Revolution with Rick Tomlinson.
0: Hey there, Spacers. Welcome to The Space Revolution. My name is Rick Tomlinson. You are listening to iRock Space Radio. We're part of the iHeart Radio Network. And uh, yeah, we're going to have a fun show tonight um, or today, whenever you're listening to this on the sphere we call the earth um i have uh, a great guest um and it's his name is j trent adams um trent is what i referred to i was kind of teasing him before we started as a renaissance dude <laughs> he is uh, uh a bit of everything and, and i mean everything you're, you're gonna be amazed by a couple of the things we talk about here but his, his background he went to vassar college in uh nyc um and has a, 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 his rent paying background, as he refers to it, is um, in in security, uh, where for six years he was with PayPal, um, in the security ecosystem uh, division. And then recently kind of have your own thing you're doing in that area, but identity, privacy, security, almost none of which we will talk about today. <laughs> um, because we're a space show, but I am, we might hit on a, a little of that regarding space, actually, at some point here. Uh, but really what we're going to talk about is is Trent's work as a board member of the Analog Astronaut Foundation. This is a group that I'm really excited about because those of you who know uh, my background with the Earthlight Foundation, part of our work is that over time, we believe there are going groups, to be groups that evolve who are self-selected groups who are ones who over time develop the passion the capability and hopefully the finances to be able to say hey Elon, hey Jeff, hey Rocket Lab, whoever it is who can carry us out into the solar system. We want to like buy a ride on one of your ships and maybe, you know, X number of ships for resupply and we're going to the moon or we're going to Mars or we're going to build a habitat and go live there. And so the Analog Astronaut Foundation focuses in on variations on um, doing that now. And I'm not going to get too far into it because that's why we have a guest and an expert. Uh, but it, it's really exciting. And so, Trent, you guys just had an event at the Biosphere. And there's a whole long conversation to be had about the Biosphere and the history of it. But it is, they've kept it running. It is a beautiful place, and I'm just going to let you describe it and uh, describe the the event. And welcome, sir.
1: Hey, thank you. You know, Rick, I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, you know, especially the audience that you've helped cultivate. Um, I think it's absolutely fantastic to bring everybody together. And as we move forward in this space exploration next phase, right, the commercialization of space, and that's kind of what we're all doing is. Trying to figure this out together. Yeah, so what's fascinating about the work that we are doing in the Analog Astronaut Foundation is is building a community of those folks who are specifically working in the industry of research and development for what that next phase is in human space exploration, right? And up until recently, when Jasper Allen when, uh, and, and Cyan Proctor brought the community get together, all of the researchers were kind of working on their own in silos or working on one project, or working on another project, but not really sharing a lot of the commonalities and a lot of the experiences that they had in these various analog um, habitats. And that's what we look to do is to bring these people together and have a conversation. Share information, share knowledge, and propel the conversation forward. And that's where they just came back from is the uh, the third Analog Astronaut uh, Conference, um, Analog Astronaut Community Conference, at uh, the Biosphere Two project in Arizona, and it was an absolutely fantastic event. I cannot overstate the value of bringing a couple hundred people together who work in this industry sharing notes, and moving progress forward. Absolutely fantastic group of people that we can all learn from. Absolutely amazing.
0: So Cyan, as we all know, or or, or those who listen probably do know, uh, flew herself into space. I'm sure you want to go at some point, but what kinds of other people, a little more, dig in a little bit more, the kind of people, and I gather some of them actually have organized groups themselves, right? They're already out doing the analog thing can you give us some of those examples
1: yeah you know honestly before i got plugged into the group a few years back i had in my head what the analog astronaut uh community and research was doing right and i had it in my head that it was you know kind of in the nasa style where you had a you know a broad selection process for crews and you had research you know a phalanx of research work that needed to be done and you bring you know that work together and you kind of select and you develop this as a as a cohesive whole and it turns out that i learned through the experience of of uh, collaborating with these folks that that's not the case it actually turns out that they're all very discrete projects that are being run almost independently there's a little bit of sharing kind of just through the network of people who know each other, but there's no formalized mechanism for collaborating across these research activities. And so what, you know, I would meet these people who were doing the, you know, this work, and then I would say, well, that's very similar to that work being done over there. Have you talked to each other? Are you working? Are you sharing? And that's the gap that really we tried to find a way to fill. And I say we because I like to say, um, you know, that, that we're all collaborating on this, but really it was just a handful of folks who got together and, and figured this stuff out again, you know, like cyan and jazz and others. And it is kind of like what you're saying. There's these other activities and pockets of, of, of folks doing work. And the, the question is how can you pull them together? Just as an example, again, I just came, I literally just got off the plane uh, from the, the, the latest um, uh, so I'm still processing the amazing diversity, inclusiveness, quality of all these people is a true representation of humanity on Earth. Pulling this, pulling this work together, and it's not at all like what has come before us. So what's come before us is a very self, well, very strictly selected group of of individuals that did not necessarily uh, act as a Cross section of humanity, um, you know, you've got the test pilots, you've got the scientists, you've got the engineers. We're all kind of self-selected. Where are the janitors, right? Where are the artists? Where are the you know the, the, the you know the passionate individuals that are not necessarily working in the industry directly? Where are these people, right? And so this is what we brought together, and y- you've got this amazing cross section. Um, And I think you touched on my background a little bit, um, whereby, you know, I I work in the technology sector, right? I work on cybersecurity. I attend a lot of uh, scientific um, and technology conferences around the world. And I have never seen a cross-section of humanity as I have seen at the uh, Analog Astronaut Community Conference. It is a true representative of what humans are like at this conference that I've never seen in another technical conference before and it's when you pull those threads of the artists and the poets um, and the engineers and the you know lack of a better term the janitors sorry the people who make sure the plumbing is working as a, a great example I was talking to uh, you know to Hank Rogers who is a driver of um, you know high seas which is an analog uh, uh, an analog facility analog hab in Hawaii. And, yeah, they had plumbing problems. You know, if you don't have a plumber in your mission, you're going to run into problems. So these are things you actually have to think about and worry about and, and consider beyond just the test pilots, beyond just the scientists and engineers. And that's the group of people that we bring together in, these, uh, in, in this community to share not just the, you know, sexy let's go to space thing but oh yeah we had to roll up our sleeves and and you know figure the plumbing out and that's the kind of thing that this community brings uh, together such that when we move you know to the next phase of space exploration we're going to need folks like this they're going to need to be trained up they're going to need to understand what all of the challenges are and they're going to need to be ready to uh, engage with those challenges and overcome them and that's kind of what what we have here is this group of people who fill those those gaps that are have historically and traditionally been kind of overlooked or or not otherwise uh, involved in the conversation
0: so there were private nonprofit groups were there any government groups um, and any um, international what did what did you get from uh, the international oh, side?
1: Okay, so you've asked a multivariant uh, question there <laughs> um, so, the interesting thing, as we all know in this industry, right, um, government entities have a tendency to be very cautious in their engagement. Um, there's a lot of paperwork that needs to be filled out and um, authorizations that need to be provided when you say you are operating in a colloquium um, on behalf of that giant entity. A government, as an example. So one of the things that yes, there were participants in the in the most recent event and in within the community who do nominally represent or otherwise are contributing on behalf of these um, uh, government agencies. That being said, they're very circumspect about their involvement, and I think that's just paperwork and red tape, honestly. So that's that answer. I I wish I could. I wish I could tell you uh, the governments and agencies that were involved. We kind of are not in a position to be able to do so. That being said, they were there internationally. I can tell you, it was amazing the number of countries that were involved. Again, I'm just coming off of this, um, having landed yesterday. Um, uh, if I were to guess, I'd say a half a dozen different countries um, were represented um, at the, at the organization and, and quite a handful of them were what I would consider underrepresented in the international space exploration community as it currently exists, which I think is absolutely fantastic that we're reaching deep into those countries and communities around the world that should be represented and need to be represented. Their voices need to be heard. Um, and we're, hoping to provide that conduit of, of information in a more ad hoc kind of uh, process so yeah there's a lot there were a lot of different countries involved can you rattle off a couple um I didn't mean to you know, nail yeah, you there but yeah, I'm just yeah, very curious uh, you know and it, again as a, as a, you know as a member of the foundation I have to you know make sure that I'm careful not to represent Don't don't say it officially but just correct
0: yeah a couple of nations that might have been represented I I'm, I'm just yeah, curious yeah. So we,
1: so we had some from uh Mexico we had some from uh a, a couple of African countries we had um a couple from uh Asian countries and all of these or uh, all of these countries were represented by various I don't know if they're officially designated as NGOs but definitely in that caliber of space where they are. are non-governmental, but yet uh, non-profit organizations that represent e- space exploration around the world. So, yeah, no. I'd say about a half a dozen or so different distinct countries were represented in, in the conversation.
0: That's fantastic. Yeah, I um, I, I don't know if they were there. I, I think there's, they may not be. Those the, the Mongolians have actually been playing this area. I am
1: probably not there, but. Not, you know, honestly, they could have been there. I it didn't, there's it a couple hundred people. You can't meet everyone. Yeah,
0: um, no, sure, sure. But the point I'm making, I think, is that this is not a US thing. Correct. This is a human thing.
1: I, right? I love that you said that. It is human driven, it's not nation driven. And I think that's right. what we're all seeing in this next phase of space exploration.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, so look, I, um, uh, you know, I have a bit of a history here. I, we actually haven't chatted about this, but many years ago, I was running an endowment called the Fines Endowment Foundation for the International Non-Government Development Space. And we gave this uh, this guy, a friend of mine named Bob Zubrin, some money to start a thing called the Mars Society. And um, he got it matched and launched it. I love to tease Bob because he immediately kicked me off his board uh, once the check cleared because I used the other M word at the time, which was Moon. <laughs> and that was not acceptable. But now we're friends, and Bob is Bob has opened up his worldview, his universe view. But what's interesting always was interesting to me is that they had a uh, facility in Newfoundland called the Flashline Mars Research Facility, which was one of the first non-government analogs. And I think you can still see pictures with our logo logo F I N D S right by the hatch there. That's always a point of pride because I, I, I really believe. Um, in this idea of this being more than a government activity and more than any single government's activity and more than about just science. Right. Right. This is bigger than that. So, look, we're going to come back. We're going to kind of play around with just the topic itself, because uh, I know you have a depth and breadth of, of uh, understanding of it. And uh, we'll have some fun with that. So uh, stay tuned, folks. You are listening to iRock Space Radio, part of the iHeart Radio network. My name is Rick Tumlinson, and this is the Space Revolution. Hey there, spacers! Welcome back, Rick Tumlinson here, the Space Revolution on iRock Space Radio, part of the iHeart Radio network. We have a guest today, Trent Adams. We're having a, a conversation about analog astronauts. Now, let's be very, very clear. You, the listener, are qualified, most likely, to be an analog astronaut because there's one qualification, that you are human and you can survive basically without life support. Maybe you have with life support, actually probably still could anyway, but you are a human being and that's what this is about. This is about little bubbles of humans expanding out into the solar system um, expanding the domain of life and moving out. But what's really cool about what Trent and and uh, the folks at Analog Astronauts are doing is that they're starting now. They're practicing. They're learning. They're trading information, mm-hmm. learning skills. And Trent, I do have to say one thing. Uh, you, you mentioned the janitors, and I, I know you were using that as like regular folks who aren't alpha astronauts, right? By the way, it's always my, it's been my opinion for a long time that the alpha male astronaut's probably the first person to get voted out the airlock, right? They're, they're not going to be good for like working with teams. Um, But yeah, I, I was, uh, I, I've jotted some notes down. I'll probably do an op-ed on this. But the idea that, you know, one of the qualifications in my mind for really being on a team that goes is, you know, you have to ask somebody the question like, have you ever, um, uh, built or renovated a house, right? Have you ever done electrical wiring, plumbing, all of those basic things? And you touched on that in the first section, you know, it's this, because we have this glory, this idea like, oh, I'm a jet pilot, you know, I'm Tom Cruise, I've done this, you know, I'm a NASA right stuffer, this kind of thing, or ESA right stuffer, a cosmonaut, whatever. But actually, so much of what happens in these habitats is just basic stuff. And the reason I highlight that, and I'm going to let you speak about that in a second, is that what that means is so many more people have the basic skills than this image we we give ourselves about astronauts is all about, right? You, you got skills. If, if you can fix a car or plumbing or a computer, right? D- tell us about that.
1: Yeah, I think you've hit on exactly the... Um, kind of this next phase, right? I mean, everything comes in phases. You you have to have that first phase, which is the you know the launching into the unknown and the and the willingness to 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 be that explorer that you know you you have to have a certain gene for you know I may not come back right from this. Um, once you've kind of broken that barrier, and we see this in, you know historically in exploration, once you've broken that barrier it opens up the opportunity to say, well, wait a minute, great. Let's move, you know, this colony let's move this group of people from point A to point B along this this line that was broken open by these intrepid explorers. Now, you know, frankly, not everyone is going to be, uh, you know, that one who crosses, you know, the the ocean for the first time um, or or explores the Antarctic or whatever. But once you've done that and you, you get those lessons learned, you build a conduit for moving humanity into what you've just o- unlocked. And it's I mean, maybe from the gamification, it's the unlocking of the achievement, right? And once we've unlocked that achievement, we can move into a, another phase. And that's the phase we're in now. And that phase we're in is moving uh, more of a cross section of humanity. Now, we're still, honestly, we are still in the position of needing that next wave. Of intrepid explorers, um, not necessarily ready for the broad population of everybody who's used to creature comforts that we are in in, in modern society. It's just not there yet. No matter where we go, we're not there yet. As an example, we ran uh, the you know the first SAM mission um, at, at at the Biosphere Two. Um, for those you know, if your listeners aren't aware, so Biosphere Two, which is this amazingly big, audacious. Uh, project, um, I think you did a uh, you know, piece on that before, they've now taken the um, initial test hab, the test habitat that was used prior to the building of the Biosphere B- 2, and they've refurbished it. And it's been refurbished into a modern analog astronaut habitat. And it, we just launched, we were proud to uh, see the first uh, group go through this this newly refurbished hab. And it's now going to be an on-running habitat uh, for for the analog astronaut community, just like any of the other Habs around the world. And it's got some really unique features to it. If we get time, uh, happy to, be, to dig into it. But what we did is we were able to leverage the uh, being the first mission, kind of do the shakedown cruise of it. Right? We ran the first team through there for a week, and it was an inclusive mission. By the way, it was it was we had uh, you know the first blind analog uh astronaut running through there and it you know as, as well as others you know to, to flesh out the crew of four and it was amazing what we learned through that exercise uh in twofold number one is a brand new hab what issues do you run into um you know what are the things that you need to that you thought was a good idea or you didn't think about and then you you run that first mission and you're like yeah Lessons learned, take the notes, you know, make it better for the next group. Similarly, with the inclusive uh, nature of it, um, you know, with the first uh, a, a blind crew member, there were a lot of things that, you know, we thought we thought through. And then, you know, when she was walking through the hab and, you know, performing the tasks, we realized things we need to improve. And it was amazing testament to the mission support crew that we were running two missions, uh, one uh, mission for a week. And then we took a pause, the, you know, the egressed, addressed all the issues that that, that were brought up and we're rolling back in with the second crew this week. And it's amazing to see all the lessons learned and how they were quickly adapted to. And I think that that's what you're speaking to is that when people show up and start actually operating in this environment, well, what are the things that you don't think about? What are the things that you need to do? And it's all of this lessons learned that we're feeding back into the community and learning about.
0: Interesting. Can you give us an example of something you didn't anticipate? Something that like, oops.
1: Right. Yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, a good example might be in this one hab, in the SAM hab. And, and the SAM is a very unique habitat. Um, what does SAM stand for, by the way? Uh, why do you ask me questions that I should know the answer to? right? Uh, that's all right. This fine.
0: Is, Skip right by it.
1: <laughs> something Let's, module. Uh, you know, there's something about analog for Mars and the Moon. Okay, it's, there we go. Maybe right, really right. simulated analog for the Mar for, for Mars and the Moon. We'll go with that for now. I'm
0: going to just um, say yes. Okay, I'm terrible go. with this stuff myself. Not a problem. <laughs> uh,
1: you know, once you get, come on, we all live in the space uh, industry here, right? Right. Everything we them so much
0: net. we forget where they're derived. I, I totally got it. Totally. And that's cool.
1: exactly it. I, in my day job for cybersecurity, everything has an acronym, and even the, some of the technologies I help develop, I don't. I, people ask me on in interviews that are saying, "Well, you know, what is this?" Um, I don't know. Nah, it's no just problem. a thing that does a thing. What's interesting about the the, the SAM um, analog is that it is hermetically sealed. Now, most analogs are not built to the rigors of of engineering, such that they can be. Hermetically sealed, and this one is now. It was. It's because it was built that way in you know, in the um, 80s, right? So mm-hmm. it was built in the in the early 80s, and so we you kind know, of it was refurbished, um, you know, by the by the team at um, in Arizona, and they refurbished the hermetic seals. So what you have is you've got what's called a lung, and the lung is essentially a really large space that normalizes the pressure within the hab because as you know during the day right in, in the moon or mars whatever as soon as the sun comes over it's going to heat up the the um you know the space and mm-hmm. as it heats up mm-hmm. the space as we all know right you've got an expansion of the atmosphere and then as it as the sun sets you've got a cooling of the atmosphere and you've got a uh, a contraction of the atmospheric pressure well you need some mechanism by which that it compensates for that and so mm-hmm. they so in the Sam uh, analog they have a giant lung that move this this piston moves up and down based on on the um, ambient pressure in order to normalize it and one of the things that was interesting is you have to keep track of this right so one of the tasks as you said is it's a daily task it's not necessarily it's and not necessarily research driven, but it is a thing that you need to do for maintenance and you have to keep track of you know, how is this operating. And so one of the tasks of the engine or the uh, mission crew is to just document this over time and make sure that it's within operating uh, parameters. And what they found with the, um, you know, your a blind crew member is, well, we were measuring that with a tape, you know. A measuring tape with no indication for a blind operator to know, you know, what the different uh, Mm -hmm. markings were on that. And so what she did is she very quickly realized, well, we need to add uh, markings on this tape so that, you know, a blind operator can go in and feel the tape and understand what the uh, pressure was of this giant piston. Is it it operating within uh, parameters? And so she added that um, mm-hmm. we need to make it more robust. But it was a thing that it was really quickly identified as, well, shoot, we didn't even think about that. It's one of those things that is going into the books of, well, when you do these kinds of things, this is what you need to think about. Mm hmm.
0: Yeah. And, and it's interesting, too, because whether or not the person is you have a blind person, if you were in a an emergency situation or low light situation, it'd be the same same fix. Yeah. So, you it, you yeah, it, yet- it's broader than that. Hmm?
1: You have hit on it. That is exactly the point. I, I, I wish I could remember um, the astronaut's name who was um, uh, doing a spacewalk and lost vision because of uh, you know the accumulation of, of mm-hmm. uh, liquid in the in the in the helmet. And absolutely, it's not that that astronaut was blind. It was that the astronaut was blinded by the circumstances. And yep. so, absolutely, this kind of learning is real-world applicable, 100%. Yeah.
0: yeah, very, very cool. Look, I'm, it, there's just so much to go into here, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm just, you know, when I first talked to you about this before the conference, you know, I got so excited because it is, it's a thing. And, and I've been wanting to see this thing happening, right? And you know, for a long time, you know, and we've got this intersection coming up of, you know, this, this moment in time where people are actually going to be able to, to go. Right. And do you see any of these groups that are moving maybe a little bit beyond experimentation and starting to think about, I you had mentioned commercial development. Experience. I actually see it as more the democratization, right? Commercials within it. I mean, you know, um, that kind of thing. Uh, but I want to make sure that uh, people hear that democratization because... Sometimes the commercial side gets demonized because we've been trained to think of space as NASA, government, and ESA and cosmonauts, right? But do you see any of these groups that are actually going on, going beyond? And we, we can come back if if it's uh something you want to dive into, but that are going beyond these activities and starting to form into identifiable groups who are saying, you know what, we're practicing now because we're really going to go. Is that? Are you, did you pick up any of that at the?
1: Well. I, what I think is hilarious about what you said is that I think it's almost flipped on the head because 90% of the people there were assuming that <laughs> we're in on a trajectory such that it is true that we're all going at some point or we all could go at some right. point. And if if that's true, we could all go at some point, then absolutely everyone was everyone at the conference was working towards that. And I think, you know, from my background, I work on technologies. I'm a basic, the reason I'm a futurist is not because I sit on you know, in my chair and think about what the future is going to be. I sit in my chair and think, I'm an idiot. and smarter people than me have already figured things out. And if that's true, then what's the next thing based on what they've already figured out. And so I live about 10 years in the future, the work that I do. And so if I'm living 10 years into the future, what's the assumption, right? What's if that's the case when who's going, what's, you know, what's going on. And that's where this conference really does shine is we're building the groundwork for the assumption that, and I loved your phrasing of the democratization of space. Because once commercial is unlocked and it's away from, you know, nation state control, then you've got the democratization. And if that's the case, who needs to go? Well, then what needs to be in place? How are we going to support that? And so I think everyone there at the conference and everyone in the community is kind of living at that assumption level. And what does that mean? What are the implications? Of that. So I would be willing to bet that a lot of the research being done uh, by this community is going to be a fast follow on to what's being unlocked today by the commercialization. Perfect.
0: All right, Spacers, uh, we're going to be back in a few minutes with uh, our guest, Trent Adams. My name is Rick Tomlinson. This is the Space Revolution, and you're listening to iRock Space Radio, part of the iHeart Radio Network. Hey there, Spacers. Space Revolution time. We're back at Trent Adams. He's been working with the Analog Astronaut Conference. Uh, he's all pumped up because he just finished it. And um, I'm pumped up, too, because I'm just happy to see that such a thing is happening. Trent, we're, um, as we were wrapping up there, we are at that moment. I, I've been telling people, I was at the the launch, uh, you know, for um, for Starship. Uh, which, by the way, was a success. And, uh, and there are more coming. And maybe by the time somebody listens to this, there will have been another one that's already flown. But regardless, we're, it's going to take a little bit of time. I'm, by the way, I'm telling people that the revolution really happens here when they land, refuel, and fly again in a couple of days. That's, that's the moment. Right? Or for the Star Trek fans, that's when the Vulcans show up. And, um, you know, you're, you're dealing with this group of people who are planning to go. And, um, and I'm, I'm so happy to hear that you were saying like there's international groups, there's, there's people from all over the place, all kinds of people, uh, people that are differently abled, as they say, what, what do you see as the next step for your organization? Um, I gather you're going to do it again next year at the biosphere, but, uh, tell us a little bit about that. Where, what's going to happen next with you guys? You haven't, did you co- cook up any great plans for what's coming? What's coming?
1: Uh, yes, that you so can tell us great, about so many great plans. Um, the, the one that I think that speaks exactly to what you're talking about is how do you scale up? Right. If you t- it's all very well and good to do an in- individual habitat uh, research exercise and then do another individual habitat exercise. But the learnings really come from the scale of the data collected and analyzed you know it, it, as an astrophysicist it's all about the what's the n number right in, small n not as useful large n more useful and one of the things that we're working on now as a community is the world's biggest analog and this is something that's never been done before and again it's a testament to the communities coming together and finally sharing and being on the same page in the same place because, as we all know, everything's individually funded. Everything's, you know, got their backer, and you know, they have their their uh, objectives that they need to achieve. And what we're finding through this collaboration is the ability to unlock that next level and, and increase that n number of data collection by a significant factor. So we're working currently on uh, the world's biggest analog, and what what we're Doing is bringing together all the habitat directors. I think we have about half a dozen signed up, and I think we're, we've got eyes on about a dozen um, of habitats around the world where we will be running a concurrent mission across all of them. And, and it's we're still working on what that looks like. What does that mean, and how are we going to pull all of these research activities together? But or among them is the sharing of of research across that that you know all of them such that we have a large n number enough to make you know scientifically valid uh, uh you know analysis and conclusions from them we're still working out whether they you know they're g- going to be simultaneous or they're going to be sequential but the idea here is you know you have your mars colony analog you've got your mars your moon colony analog you've got your your low earth orbit colony analog and they're all working together as if we're in the future and these all exist, how do they communicate with each other? What research are they performing? How can they make sure that everything that is being done in one is being done in a way that's comparable to the other? And these are all difficult questions to answer that no one has been able to uh, address or answer until now. And that's what we're working towards. Um, We've got a couple of years um, that we're that you know run runway room here that we're working on um, we're targeting 2025 but you know we've all got our time frames that we need to deal with because there's a lot of a lot of things that are going on but that's essentially the uh the event horizon we're looking at so in
0: 2025 several groups of people representing several locations in space right i'm, I'm gonna bet you have like two or three mars and two or three moon and Probably a couple exactly of Free right. Space. Uh, yeah. By the way, I use Free Space for everything that's not low Earth orbit. Um, the, the 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 place between, which is, you know, my boss used to be. My boss was a guy named Jerry O'Neill, wrote the High Frontier. So he was my Obi Wan, and so I have that bias. Although I love them all, as you can see, I have a book called Return of the Moon here, and all of that. So I'm I'm a I'm a cheerleader for all of them. But you're going to have all these units, these people interacting as if they're in these places. Now, it boggles the mind as to all the different kinds of experiments you could do. I mean, you could get into uh, simulated trade. You could get into IP creation, like, hey, I've come up with this thing over here. Maybe you guys can apply it here. You know, maybe more likely between the moon and Mars, but the free space people are like, well, we can't use that. That's, that's useless to us. So that, I, I love that. And I guess one of the next steps might be and this one's gonna be harder, I would say, is you need to find something like the size of a Coliseum and you've got like a hundred people, you know, or fifty people, let's say, in yeah. one place. That's gonna be probably harder to do, but I could see that as like downrange, right? Would
1: that make sense as something to do? I, I love the way you're thinking. Because you're 110% correct. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can't go from where we are right now, right? Where we are right now is each individual hab having, you know, between four and, and, you know, crew members for a reasonably short period of time, you know, talking multiple weeks, to months or so, and then move from here today to what you just suggested, right? Which is a full blown colony. And we need to get there. And the question is, how do we get there? And, and, and yes, so the, this mission that we're planning currently is going to be geared towards how do we get there? Mm-hmm. Um, I would I'd suggest what you just said is brilliant. So it's, let's say 2027 or 2030. That's where we need to be. Mm-hmm. Now, in order to learn the lessons, in order to get there, we need to do this first step, which is multiple small halves connected then we can move to the where, where the colony is. But you're exactly right. I think you're on the right trajectory.
0: Yeah, I've had a couple of years to think about it. So...
1: Um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like you know something, Rick. Yeah, you know, it, it's really... I, I will say this. It's funny because um, one of the challenges, some of the, uh, I guess, the OGs like like myself have in this field is, you know, we, we've had all this time because it's taken too long to think about these things, right? So... Dr. O'Neill and Dr. Dyson, his partner, um, and the, the rest of them were holding these conferences back in the 90s and the 80s, where you would come in and work on this stuff, right? In At uh, at Princeton, really just getting into all of this stuff, it, it's almost like you want to bring it back out now. And you might even want to, I might even suggest that uh, leading up to next year's event, that you find some of these folks from from back then who've worked on this. And and put them in a session to sort of share some of that early knowledge. I mean, so much of it has been lost. I'm actually thinking about trying to lean on, my I won't say my buddy, but on Jeff, like somebody like Jeff Bezos to bring all of that information into a place. Maybe it's the Biosphere people. You bring all of it there so it's shareable and people can do research on it and understand how to work with it. And... So much of it's going to be wrong, but there's going to be you know a couple of times you're going to come up, oh we called it the wheel, you know it's, it spins you know oh, you know uh, that kind of thing. But look, I, I'm I'm again I'm totally thrilled. So let's let's move on a, a little bit here. I want to get uh, into into a couple little uh, other areas here. You're you are a generalist, and I'm just going to pick on you because of what I see over your shoulder, which I see. The Armored knight suit. I see. I don't know. That's not an Aces suit, but it's a space, NASA space suit. A seven L. Okay, an A seven L. Uh, I had a space suit company at one point called Orbital Outfitters, and and I will mention this, uh, and, and then we'll talk about the alien on the spacesuit, but <laughs> uh, which I love that touch. Um, one of the the thing that, that's blowing my mind is in our spacesuit company, it was called Orbital Outfitters, and we rolled out a functional uh, emergency get me down suit called the. Uh, um, Well, it was a a get-me-down suit. And the guy who designed it for us um, was a medievalist. But he had also done the spacesuits on Firefly, Serenity, Space Cowboys, all of these other movies and stuff. And his father had worked for one of the big spacesuit companies on the East Coast. And what was amazing about it, and why I'm just pointing that out behind you is what he did blew my mind. And uh, you've got a visual representation right there, so I have to talk about it. He used stitching patterns for the materials in like shoulders and elbows and arms that they had used for armored knight suits. Because back then, um, you're carrying all this weight and stuff, and if you're moving your arms around, you can't move them around in a limber fashion, you're dead, right? And what he did was he figured out ways to weave this stuff so it would slip and all of that. So when it came under pressure, because a spacesuit is under pressure, it would be movable. And so we had these videos of him doing jumping jacks and push-ups. and the NASA ACES suit, which is the one the astronauts used to wear up and down in the shuttle, had way less mobility than that. And we went into Johnson Space Center and he met with some folks down there and they their minds were blown. They had, how do you do that? And the funny part was, just as in your illustration or the, the, the things behind you, he had gone back a thousand years, right? And he had adopted and learned from these very, very, very basic technologies that we had forgotten, right? And brought them forward. Now, building on that and bringing it back around to what we were talking about, a lot of that is going to happen out there, right? Right. You know, I mean, you're maybe not going to be chipping stones together to start your fires and stuff, but the very, very basics, not just of technology, but of how people work together, teams operating, all of that. Does that come up a lot with you guys? Um, That was a long intro, forgive me,
1: but. No, I I love how you got us here um, through the conversation because what I think it boils down to is diversity of conversation in the room. And, and this okay. is what literally I found the most profound takeaway from the analog astronaut community conference is the diversity of voices in the room. And you're all treated as equals. No one gets preferential voice because you came from this lineage or that lineage, but rather You come to the conversation with what you do, your diverse background, your diverse opinions, your diverse knowledge, and then you shake out what is useful. And I think that's the power of the next phase here is, you know, I do think that there is some value. We look back at NASA and, and, you know, the uh, initial development of these projects, you have to kind of narrow the scope. You've got to get it going to build the ship to do the thing and get to the point. But now that we've unlocked that achievement, now we have the opportunity to bring other voices in. And that's what we're seeing. And I loved your your, your suggestion there of like, how does spacesuit design? And the, the reason why behind me here is a 12th century night replica uh, that I I had to make, this is a full chainmail set, by the way, mm. this is actually not a costume. It's actually a replica suit. And I often take it to schools and give talks about uh, medieval, uh, uh, armor and of course go to grand fairs. And at one Renaissance festival, I was wearing my suit and, and an army ranger came up to me and said, well, you know, he was talking to me about it and asking, you know, what it was like and how much did it weigh? And I'm like, well, this is about 72 pounds of gear. And he said, well, that's interesting because the current modern rangers carry about 70 pounds of gear. And it's fascinating as we started to talk about this and realize that over time, that amount of weight a human body can carry hasn't changed, right? And human body hasn't changed that much in the thousands of years, and so essentially that's what you can carry. So what we could carry back in you know 12th century is the same as a um, um, you know modern uh, warrior can carry today, and so you kind of think about this and you're like, oh, those are interesting connections. Well, how do you then carry that through to you know to, to space? How can you carry that through to the next frontier? You know what? That's lessons learning, man. And how do you learn those lessons? It's frankly through these random interactions, these random conversations with people with different skill sets, different experience. Mm, Perfectly, yeah. And that's how you do like what you suggested. You bring these things forward. And I think that the power that I would like to see in the industry is the openness to new ideas. That doesn't mean all new ideas are good, by the way. But it means they have to be heard, considered, and then those that succeed and make sense carried forward. Don't dismiss ideas that are not... Oh, the other thing you brought up, which I think is fascinating, is the carryover, the cross-connect between costuming for fiction and reality. And in fact, one of the people that I met at the uh, Analog Astronaut Conference just last weekend is they own a company who makes their living making spacesuits for film Mm -hmm. they have been tapped by organizations in industry to actually carry them forward in design and develop legitimate spacesuits for exploration why because they understand what the human body can carry how does it work and how can you you know stitch these together such the you know uh they, they work in an In a hard environment, like, you know, so I was in uh, Star Wars, right? So I was in Force Awakens, and I got to see the costumes that they made for me and how incredibly detailed they were and how incredibly robust and resilient they were because for days and days and days of filming. Yeah, carry that forward. That's not just fiction. Let's bring that skill into the into the real world of exploration so yeah absolutely all of these things cross-connect and we just need to be open-minded enough to listen and share
0: perfect well you've set us up for the next section we're going to have some fun we're going to talk about the 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 fact that you are a minister and recently married somebody um, and and things like that so we're going to come right back after that after this little break my name is rick tumlinson you're listening to the space revolution here on irock space radio part of the iHeartRadio network. Our guest is Trent Adams, and we are talking about those squishy things that are all over the sphere. We call them humans and how they are going to be able to uh, learn to live in space by starting right now in an analog just down the street. Be right back. Welcome back, spacers. iRock Space Radio, part of the iHeartRadio network. I am Rick Tumulty. So you can follow me at RocketRick, by the way, on uh, Twitter and uh, LinkedIn. And uh, I have a tendency to just say some stuff now and then um, about the space field. So uh, log on in anytime you like. Uh, our guest today is is Trent Adams. We've been talking about analog astronauts. Uh, in the last segment, I, I, I forgot that you're going to be largely hearing this on a podcast uh, to start. Trent is talking to me with a, uh, an, a knight's armor outfit behind him and a spacesuit. In a very funny way, he just happens to have one of the aliens grabbing the front of the mask of the spacesuit. We won't go there. We'll just skip right by that. And, but so your listener, if you didn't understand the context before, that's what we're looking at here. And uh, look, look. so Trent, you, you nicely sort of slipped in something that probably just stopped some people like, oh, my God, you worked on uh, one of the Star Wars films. You were actually uh, a character that showed up in one of them, correct?
1: yeah yeah i you know i I would stop short of saying i worked on it i would say i lucked into it okay Uh, the opportunity to be um an extra in star wars the force awakens um so they were you know gracious enough to uh fly us out to uh pinewood studios uh to film for a week um on force awakens and this is uh in maz's castle so anybody who wants to see what that scene was skip forward and uh Uh, force awakens i think about 57 minutes in uh and you'll see my six seconds or so of fame and if you have access to the deleted scenes there's a great scene that uh uh, we we hit the cutting room floor uh but it was an absolutely fantastic opportunity
0: oh great well look speaking of films though you, you weren't just an extra in a film you've just dropped a film that you helped work on um i think it's called adam is that correct or Norman, Norman. Yeah, Norman I'm sorry, my, yeah. Norman. Why did I forget? That's my middle name. Um, <laughs> Norman and my father's name. There's there's some therapy there. Uh, but uh, so Norman, tell us tell us about this film. I, I did put it up on my LinkedIn. Uh, you can you can see it where and and tell us tell us what's what it's about.
1: Absolutely fantastic experience that I again I have this tendency to just luck into things. I was actually one of the first 500 people. To build a website on the planet. It just so happened that I happened to know uh, a guy who was dating a girl in Tim Berners Lee's lab. Um, so we got an early release of um, HTTP um, and HTML, and I, I happened to be able to build um, one of the first 500 websites. So that was kind of cool. But I just happened into these things. Like when I was at the <laughs> New England Patriots, I was executive producer for for them for 12 years. Just so happened that the craft said, "Hey, video on the internet's going to be a thing." This was in 1996, and they said, you know, could we do that? And so I joined uh, the organization to produce the first nightly online uh, video show. And from there, it's now the longest running. So I have I have got the first online video show, and then the longest running. As long as they keep going, I'm all right there. <laughs> um, and and so I just kind of stumble into these weird things. Star Wars was another one of those things. I just stumbled into the right being in the right place at the right time and um got the opportunity to be in the film and it was an absolutely fantastic life-changing kind of thing where you know you grow up right those of us who were you know in our era when uh, the first film came out uh as kids and now to be able to walk on set walk into uh the millennium falcon it was absolutely life-changing mm-hmm. well tell, tell us about norman yeah so norman yeah, so here, that's that's right. Thanks for that, Rick, uh, to bring us back. <laughs> I do it all the time, um, Norman. Um, so the way that this worked, I fell into this. Um, I found this this amazing director Joel Gelzo and he was trying to get his indie film produced, and. The reason I, get, I guess I gave the background is that I have a background as being an executive producer and understand how, how these things are made. And a lot of times indie filmmakers don't quite get all of the different steps and mechanics and all these things. And frankly, the budget uh, that's necessary to get, you know, from point A to point B. And I joined him in his journey. He was about five years in. And then it took another three to four years to actually complete it. Um, But this is typical of independent filmmaking. Uh, So I've been around, you know, the independent filmmaking scene for years. And and all of the folks I've ever talked to say it's about average of seven years uh, to develop um, from start to finish. And so I joined uh, about five years in and I helped with completion funding. Uh, And and the completion funding essentially means, you know, all the things that you don't even really realize you need to do until you get to the end. So Foley editing, uh, audio editing, as an example, and then also color grading, and then the color grading, which is the final step prior to uh, posting. It has been an, an amazing opportunity to help this independent filmmaker, who just, by the way, is releasing uh, his next documentary. And so, you know, I, I, I find these great people who are doing great things. I can't contribute anything. They're geniuses in their own what do I do? I just kind of help grease the wheels. And that's what I do is help grease the wheels. And that's kind of how I fell into that.
0: And by the way, color grading, explain real quick.
1: Yeah. Color grading is this thing that most people don't understand when you shoot a film with multiple cameras or for multiple angles or for, with multiple lighting setups, that when you capture the, the, the uh, images, the color looks different shot to shot to shot. So when you, if you did no color grading and you just cut those, scene, those shots together, uh, it would be very jarring to you as the audience because the color would change constantly. Um, and so what the color grader does is the last step prior to uh, printing the film is to tune each of those shots, each individual shot, to make sure that the color matches shot to shot to shot. The other thing that they add is the thematic color. So the, all films that anybody's paying attention to have a co- common color palette, and then the color grader's job is to make sure that that color palette matches all the way through.
0: Mm-hmm. Cool, cool a little Hollywood lesson for the up and coming filmmakers <laughs> as well. You know, I, I appreciate your trip because, you're, in a way, you're a, a, we have uh, some stuff in common, and that is that when you when you try to explain who this person is, you know you. It's hard, right? You, you, you're, you're a, like I said, a Renaissance dude, a generalist, you know, um, and somebody who is kind of influencing the world uh, all over. And I, I, I truly appreciate that. Um, what we're about to see coming up in the world, um, just, just your perspective. What do you think it offers us, people listening, young people who are listening, others, you know, we have an audience around the world here and there. What do you think about what's happening right now? Just your your thoughts in in the space field, and how maybe how it relates to the planet? Because what you you are engaged in a very human activity, right? Analog astronauts, about as human as you get, putting people locking them up in a little place together, see how they get along. What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, and I think I think you I, I love the phrasing that you brought to it, right? Which is the human element, and too often when we, we, the community, think of space, we think of the technical element, um, the technosphere, uh, as it's called within the Biosphere 2 Space is, is you think of the technology needed. And in reality, it's it's the human experience that really is what we're all working towards, whether we know it or not. Technology is a tool, but it's the human experience that's the goal. and one of the things that i also am doing is as an executive producer for the cosmic perspective is it's a project where we're documenting the narrative of human space exploration um there's a lot of folks that are documenting this next wave of of uh you know commercialization of space uh they're either uh, you know rocket chasing right they're describing you know what's going on with the rocket development today or they're uh, uh, talking about the, you know, the news of which rocket has launched, when and where, um, what we're bringing to the table with cosmic perspective is, well, what does that mean to the human? What is, what's the feeling of that? What is the, what, you know, uh, the, the poetry, the artistry of being part of that? And that's where I think the power is. So I would say that in the ne- in, you know, in the coming wave, as we're all looking to this is, what does it mean to be human in space exploration? Not what does it, you know, what technology do we need, but what does it mean to, to be human? And I would be willing to say that within the next 20 years, we will unlock that next achievement. And that next achievement is going to be something I don't think is knowable right now. I literally don't think we can guess. We could try to guess, but I don't think we'd be right. I think we just need to prepare ourselves for what does that mean? as soon as we've unlocked that next human potential. And I think that that's what we're all gearing towards um, within the analog astronaut community is being prepared for unlocking that next potential.
0: Fantastic. Great. Very well said. So the my traditional hardcore questions that I have to ask you before I let you out the, out the airlock here, and that is, um, so you're cruising above the moon, Several thousand clicks per hour. You can feel the motion. You're coming up over the horizon. You're in your little pod there. What are you jamming to? What are you
1: listening to? I, I so love that question, Rick. Honestly, I'm listening to the music by Anu. Anu. Uh, who is a really good friend of mine. Um, Mary Liz Bender, a stage name, Anu she does this amazing amazingly ethereal music that she performs with her hands using a technology called nimu gloves Mm -hmm. as her instruments and through the beautiful motion of her hands is she creating this tapestry of music that I carry through in my day-to-day life as if in we were to see the cause, co- you know, the 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 overview effect, right? Is as that is flowing over you. this says Frank White has has, mm-hmm. has shared with us all the overview effect of being above, you know, the the celestial bodies we live on. That's the music that's playing in my ears.
0: That's beautiful, and I, I've seen people who who play that instrument, and it's it's amazing to watch and hear. I also love the fact that uh, you you couldn't see this. But as I was asking the question, Frank, I, I, Trent leaned uh, his he head back and closed his eyes and was like, You were there in the moment. That, that, that was quite beautiful, actually. So, what's your favorite science fiction film? I'm kind of guessing I know, but maybe I don't.
1: Honestly, I hate to tell you this. It's Blade Runner. Awesome. Aha. Well, uh-huh. Blade Runner is probably one of the best films if not the best films for all of its myriad levels and depths because as we talk about going off world you look back at what's left behind Mm -hmm. and in that dystopian vision of moving off world who's left behind and that is a narrative that is very influential to me is we're all humans we're all humanity Who is this that gets off-world? But who's left behind? How can we democratize this? So, Blade Runner,
0: right? Because science fiction is both um, aspirational and a warning, as well. I agree. Right? What we can do and what we should avoid—that's kind of the nature of real science fiction. It's not all, you know, rainbows and space unicorns, right? It's what we should should not do. It's a choice. All right, so we've got that science fiction book, author.
1: Oh, very easy. Uh, Neuromancer by William Gibson. Whoa. The absolute best opening line that I think is hilarious because it doesn't work with my kids today. Best opening line in a science fiction book is, the sky was a television tuned to a dead channel. (laughs) <laughs> you and i know what that means and we get it we're like oh it was a gray uh kind of uh oppressive image and my kids read that today and say oh so it was really pretty blue <laughs> Perfect. like no no you missed the point of what gibson was trying to say mm. and it just didn't carry through uh you know uh over time but Amazing book, amazing, absolutely amazing fiction that tells us something, I think, about humanity. Oh, that's fantastic.
0: So we have kids uh, and, and well, people of all ages who are maybe kids at heart here who think about this field, uh, obviously, or they wouldn't be tuned in or listening to this. What would you say to them? Sort of our fam- final statement here. What, what would you say to them about what's coming uh, and what their part in it can be?
1: Yeah, I would would just say, yeah, I'd speak to that in two ways. Um, One is to the kids, but the other is to the parents. And when I say parents, I mean, frankly, the entire village, right? Everybody who's raising these kids. And I think that the future is optimistic. The future is what we make it. The future is what you want to explore and how you want to bring it, you know, into reality It's all starts with imagination. It is carried through with passion and then through execution. And I think kids learning the diversity of skills necessary to bring their vision uh, uh, to reality is let's encourage that. Um, It's, it's all things It's everything. Any kid wants to do and think about and bring forward into a positive, uh, you know, way into the future. The second part of the story is to the parents and to the folks teaching these kids is encourage that behavior. Don't stifle, don't drive in one direction or another Hear and listen to what their passion is and support it because we need all of these visions, all of this passion come together to bring us to the next phase of exploration.
0: Beautiful. Very well said. Trent, it's been a massive pleasure. as I told you at the beginning, a lot of the a lot of the times I, I have some old friends come on, but when I have a new friend like yourself, and I, I think we are going to end up being friends, what I what I really enjoy is the the voyage of discovering you, your thoughts, what you're working on, who you are, uh, and the contribution you're making to now in the future. Um, and this has been a, a wonderful ride. And uh, I want to thank you for being uh, on board. And uh, dear listeners, thank you, my spacer friends. You have been listening to the Space Revolution. My name is Rick Tumlinson. The show, the, the channel, the the venue that you're getting this through, the wavelength that's the carrier for the signal is called iRock Space Radio. We're part of iHeart and we are out of the airlock
1: You've been listening to the Space Revolution podcast with Rick Tumlinson, a production of iRock Space Radio. Go to iRockSpaceRadio.com for more.